people who struggle with insomnia can really focus on the form and get obsessive about, I have to do my bedtime routine in this specific order at this specific time. And if I miss one component, I have to start all over again, or it's not going to work. And there is a lot of that anticipatory anxiety around being able to fall and stay asleep. Right. But there has to be, again, that nervous system regulation. Sleep is is natural. It doesn't mean mm. it comes naturally, but we have to lean in to those cycles and we have to teach our body and listen to what it needs at, at different times. You're listening to the Well Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Lee, women's mental cycle educator, natural fertility coach, and daytime mermaid. This is a place where we discuss all things periods, poo, ovulation, fertility, and sex. Join me weekly as we rediscover our menstrual cycles, unlock its superpowers, and guide you back into your cyclical nature. You are tuning in to episode 223 of the Well Woman Podcast. I am so excited for you to listen to this episode for a number of different reasons, but this is an episode all about sleep. Now, I invited our beautiful guest, Dr. Leah Saunders, onto the show again. She's already been an, a, a beautiful guest before, but I re-invited her back to talk about sleep. But we ended up diving into such a random and beautiful topic around sleep from menarche to menopause. And I say random, but it's really not that random if you think about it. So sleep, how important actually is that? And how does our sleep change from when we hit puberty to when we move through our menstrual years, our reproductive years, right through to menopause? That's what we're talking about in this episode. Leah says that sleep is the barometer of your health and we spend roughly around 30% of our life asleep and many of us forget to include sleep health as a really important aspect of our overall health. So we're talking about that today and the reason why I invited Leah is that we had such a great conversation in our previous episode that I knew that she had to come back to share with us about these topics. So if you're new to connecting with Leah, she turned her postpartum sleep deprivation into an opportunity to serve millions of women who suffer in sleeplessness. Dr. Leah Saunders is a naturopathic doctor and mum of two who deeply understands the struggle of insomnia. Dr. Leah is an innovative leader and engaging speaker, passionately educating women as well as clinicians on the intersection of sleep and hormonal health. She's the creator of the Better Sleep Bootcamp, a five-step framework for women wanting to improve their sleep through hormonal balance. And her goal is to help women reclaim their rest so they can do what sets their soul on fire during the day. This is a really fantastic episode, so I can't wait for you to listen to it. We do talk about one, sleep is the first symptom around menopause that we don't recognize. We talk about sleep in the women's lifespan, sleep pressure, the barometer of sleep, how we can understand and track our sleep, cycle tracking devices, and lots more. Stick around to the end of the episode. Leah shares a beautiful code with us for her Better Sleep Bootcamp. And I know you're going to want to check this out if you have a goal of improving your sleep. Leah, welcome to the Well Woman podcast. Thanks so much for having me back, Gemma. It's a pleasure to have you back. And for those who are tuning in, Leah joined us, God, it feels like a thousand episodes ago, but it hasn't even been a thousand episodes. Um, and we talked about sleep and hormones and how all of that works in for our health. And I knew we had to get you back to talk more about sleep because it's such an important topic. So thank you for, for turning up and sharing with us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Now, as we jump into it, I'd love to ask you our first podcast question, which you know what it is. Tell us what day of your cycle you're on today and how are you checking in in this moment? So I think I'm day 
14. I think I'm in that mid cycle, but what I have noticed about my cycle lately is that my ovulatory phase is coming on the earlier side. So I think I'm actually on, on the, the downslope of estrogen that happens right after ovulation. And, Ooh. uh, I look forward to it, picking back up again. And so I'll keep it real. I didn't have the best sleep last night. <laughs> I can tell you why. I love this. Please do. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I have this wonderful women's community group and we gather every other week. And last night we actually had a potluck as the module in the session was focused on blood sugar and our relationship with food. And so it was beautiful, but it meant I ate later than I typically do. I indulged in foods. I don't typically eat on a daily basis. And of course there was a little wine in there as well. So those are all things that can negatively impact your sleep. And when I got home, my almost one-year-old <laughs> wanted to cuddle. <laughs> so there's a number of factors in there, some of which we can control, some of which we can't. And I think my aura ring told me it was about five hours of sleep. So I feel pretty good today despite that, but I look forward to catching up tonight. Mm, I love your honesty, especially because people are like, well, you're the doctor for sleep and how come you didn't get a good sleep? But <laughs> I think it's fantastic because it just goes to show that every day is a slightly different day. And like you said, potluck, I had a potluck um, mm. a few days ago with all of my sisters on a, on a weekend and same thing, a lot of foods that I wouldn't normally eat. Luckily it was a lunch potluck. So mm. I, had, mm -hmm. I had the afternoon to recover. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show that the, when we do things that are out of the ordinary, that it can really impact us. Now, I just want to jump in straight up and ask you straight away this particular question before we get off topic. And I want you to introduce yourself too, but you mentioned you have an aura ring. So mm -hmm. at the time of recording this, I only just recently purchased an aura ring and people might not even know what an aura ring is when they're listening mm -hmm. to this. So, and this isn't an Aura Ring podcast episode plug. This is not promoted by Aura Ring. Maybe I should reach out to them though, but I'd love to know what is your, like, what is the Aura Ring and how beneficial is it for sleep? Mm -hmm. So there's a number of sleep tracking and wearable devices available on the market. The Aura Ring was one that was, or is one that is de designed specifically for sleep. So a lot of other wearables and tracking devices will track a lot of things, right? Like your steps and your exercise and your calories, if you count and, and track your dietary habits and all of those things. So the aura ring was originally and intentionally designed for using sleep as that ultimate metric of health. It is an incredible piece of technology. Also, I also have no conflict of interest with aura, but I just am fascinated by it because it's a ring. If you are watching the video, you can see it. It's on my finger. It's so comfortable. I don't even think about it. And that was one piece of why it was attractive to me because I can wear it all the time and I, it's not uncomfortable to wear either while I sleep. And so the aura ring is quite, quite accurate about 85%. So when we look at the comparables across the different devices that you can use. What we know is that as long as you're using one device consistently, there's always going to be an error of margin, but it, that error of margin will be consistent to you. Hmm. If the device is the same, what's more challenging is to track, you know, for a couple of nights on your Apple watch and then on your Fitbit and then on your aura ring and then on your whoop, like all of those different devices are not necessarily going to have the same margin of error or be directly translatable to each other. 
So I started using the Aura Ring, I think in 2021, if wow. I remember correctly. And I just really wanted to understand my sleep and get that, that in-depth information about sleep stages and my nervous system functioning, especially. So I always say, and I probably said on the previous podcast episode that sleep is the ultimate gauge of your nervous system. And, and when you understand, even if you think you're, you know, you're juggling all the balls up in the air and you're managing your stress and you're doing the things like last night, let's use that as a perfect example. So when I checked my ordering score this morning, it was like, don't push it today. Take it easy. Cause you're running on low. And I knew that it's also important for us to know how we feel in our body. But what I found really interesting was it took all night for my heart rate to lower. Wow. And when it takes all night for your heart rate to get to its lowest point, it means it's taking your body all night to get to the point where it can start to rest and recover. Ideally, your heart rate reaches its lowest point of the night in the first half of your sleep. So if you're sleeping for eight hours in the first four hours, your heart rate should lower ideally in that midpoint. And so what happened for me and what happens for many of the people and the patients and the women I work with is that if they, again, look at what happened last night, I was up later. I had more sugary foods. I had alcohol and a little bit of like that cortisol surge when your baby cries. And so all of that pushes your heart rate up because your nervous system is, is, uh, on edge, your blood sugar is elevated. So your digestive system is still functioning. And so it wasn't until maybe like the hour before, I woke up that my heart rate was at its lowest point, which also correlates with your deeper sleep. Mm. And we want to actually get that deep sleep. It's more natural for us to get it immediately upon falling asleep. So when we first fall asleep is typically when we'll go into our deeper stage of sleep. So I found using the aura ring super fascinating because it tracks the timing of your sleep. So it will tell you how long did it take you to fall asleep? Um, how much time you're spending in each stage. So deep versus light versus REM, how much time you're spending awake over the course of the night. And then it looks at those metrics of your nervous system, like heart rate variability, which is the amount of variation in time between heartbeats. We can chat a little bit about that and your heart rate, like I mentioned, and it's such great feedback because so often we're saying like, I don't think I'm stressed or I think I'm fine. Or I, I get enough sleep on paper or, or like, I think I'm sleeping enough, but underneath you know, if we peel back the layers and really look at what's going on, we can see, oh, look, your metabolism is still cranking all night. Your nervous system is still haywire. And that's what really helps us address those root cause components to also help you get better sleep. Mm, such powerful information. And it makes me think about some people say, well, I can't have a, a cacao before I go to bed or like in that last hour before I go to bed, because I'm pinging all night. You know, whereas for other people, like for me, I can have a cacao and I'm totally fine. And mm -hmm. I actually feel like it helps me get into a deeper sleep, but mm -hmm. everybody's body is so different. And it just, isn't it amazing that just such, so much powerful information can come from a little piece of jewelry. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. It's so incredible. And since, because I did buy it in 2021, you will have a newer version. <laughs> and so I think the one that you will have, will will track things like menstrual cycle more specifically. And so mine mm. does look at basal body temperature and I can see, and that was super fascinating. One of the things that aura has done is also looked at women who wear the ring and fell pregnant while wearing it. The aura ring could actually detect pregnancy sooner than a pregnancy test. Wow. Based on temperature. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. Especially especially because that temperature increases and it stays high. It stays high. And so you can see like in my pregnancy, if you look at it, you can see how it's elevated. And then I just didn't wear it the first couple of months postpartum. I'm like, okay, let's be real. It's just going to yell at me every day. And then now I can see those fluctuations. It's a beautiful ebb and flow of temperature. Yeah. What a great tool. So I've got my best friend's partner. He wears one. And then one of my really good friends, Helen, she also wears it an aura ring. And I then discovered that they do do the basal body temperature. And this is getting a little bit off the sleep topic, but I found it so interesting that on their website, it says that can predict your next period up to 30 days in advanced. And I'm like, oh, from like a fertility sp- like perspective, that feels a little bit too much of a big promise because so much can change around that ovulatory time. And whether you have a delayed ovulation or not, that it really, nothing can really predict until it gets closer to that fertile window, whether you are going to ovulate or not. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. So I brought the the aura ring for a fertility purpose to see, well, can I recommend this to clients? Is it really good for basal body temperature? Because what I find with basal body temperature, and this is not, (laughs) this is not a fertility tracking podcast episode, but I find that people use devices like they use a thermometer, but they don't use it accurately enough. And Mm -hmm. then they rely on that when Mm -hmm. there's too much human error. Whereas I like the fact that the ring removes the human error because you don't have to focus about taking your temperature when you wake up first thing in the morning and waking up the first time, like say four or 30 in the morning, every morning, Mm -hmm. just because you get up two mornings a week at that time, you have to do it every morning. So it's going to be interesting, but I love that because how fascinating that you're, Mm -hmm. that you know, you can just pull up and look at, okay, well, you know, where is my heart rate? Where is my sleep? Am I deep? Am I short? Am I, mm-hmm. and I love what you mentioned Leah around, you know, you get your deep sleep, you know, very early in your sleep mm-hmm. cycle for the evening. Recently I had a chest infected, uh, chest, chest infection. And I would wake up at like 12 o'clock coughing, you know, cause obviously my immune system's in full response, coughing my lungs up. And I'd be like, God, it must be like 4.30 in the morning. And I look and I'm like, oh, I've been asleep for two hours or two and a half hours or three hours. I was like, oh, God, still got a whole nother night of coughing to go. Um, but it's just so important to know this information. So thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Such a sidebar, but can you just share with us who you are? I know we've already sure. just jumped so into it, but there will be some listeners who are coming here to learn more about tracking sleep and mm-hmm. the importance of sleep beyond importance of sleep and hormones. Mm-hmm. So who are you? Why are you the best person to talk about sleep? Why did I ask you to come back? And then we can jump into the rest of the topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So I really struggled with sleep in my postpartum phase. I've always loved sleep. I've always been a great sleeper. And when I had my first son, my sleep was obviously and expectedly disrupted, but once he started sleeping better and started sleeping through the night, I was still having a lot of broken sleep and insomnia. So I would wake up when I would expect him to wake up, but even though he would still be sleeping, or if he did wake up either time, I would struggle to get back to sleep. I'd have that racing mind. And then I started to develop a lot of anticipatory anxiety about going to bed because I would wake up so tired in the morning that would drive anxiety, physical exhaustion, really a lot of mood swings and irritability and fatigue and kind of despair of like, how am I ever going to feel better? How am I ever going to get back to the gym? How am I ever going to, you know, be able to have enough focus and creativity and productivity in my business if I'm so tired and 
you know, when is this going to get better kind of thing? And I really didn't know what to do. So I'm a naturopathic doctor and I, I kind of wasn't, I, I not, I kind of, I was not <laughs> doing a good job treating sleep and asking about sleep and addressing sleep in my practice up until that point. And we take things for granted, right. When we've never had an issue or a challenge with it. And so when I was really struggling, I started to become more aware and educate and dive into the research eventually. And, and like really started, it was, it was actually another podcast episode I listened to and the idea of sleep and hormones and cortisol and blood sugar and all of these things. And I was like, Oh, like there's more than just putting your head on the pillow and going to sleep and waking up and feeling great because I, I had no idea before, like I just hadn't struggled. Right. And, and obviously there was a serious lack of sleep education in, in my medical education as well. And so when I did what I had to do to fix my sleep, I was like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And so I started asking patients more questions and better questions. And I started applying what I had done and offering them those solutions and, and frameworks and systems and strategy and whatnot. And they started sleeping better. And I was like, okay, we are really onto something here. And so since then, now my practice is almost exclusively focused on helping women sleep, particularly as they navigate PMS, perimenopause and menopause, because those are the times in our lives when we really struggle with sleep. There's a, certainly the statistics show that as we transition through our forties and fifties and the four years leading up to our final menstrual period, there is a serious disruption in our sleep and being postpartum and struggling. I was like, okay, there's no way that this is going to be one of those things that has to happen again. I want to know everything I can do now. And I'm going to stay on that path and know what I can do to support my sleep. So if those things like hormonal changes again, which we can't control happen, which will, then I know, and I have so many other tools to use and to share so that it doesn't have to be that thing that has to happen. Oh, right? juicy. Yeah. And I think that, you know, firstly, back to when you were saying that, you know, through your, your study that, you know, in that education, there was no real in-depth sleep education. And the crazy part is that I would, it's not half of our lives that we spend asleep, but it's a big portion. About 30%. I was going to say, you would know the stats on mm-hmm. that. And so that's a third of our life almost. and you know, unless you're someone who gets a lot longer sleep, then maybe it is a third. Um, That's a lot of time that we're not looking at. And so much happens whilst we're asleep. That's really important for the things that happen whilst we're awake. Mm -hmm. And there's a miss there. And I love that you mentioned about the sleep struggle that people can experience, especially around the menstrual cycle changes, because there's a lot. And I would imagine, you know, let me know your insights if you have any. Is there a big sleep pattern change around puberty? around that first mm. menstruation as well, because, you know, for moms who might be listening to this, you know, back, you know, if they've got children or back when I was 15 and a half, when I started menstruating, you know, I've got no idea. I can't remember what my sleep was like. That was not a priority in my life, but a lot of teens, it's cool to stay up late. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cool to push mm-hmm. the sleep. So quickly, is there any, um, mm. you mentioned PMS, postpartum, premenopause, menopause. What about menarche? Mm-hmm. So what we see is that girls and boys, males and females, people with ovaries versus otherwise will have similar sleep structure until puberty. 
Wow. And until hormones come into play. And that's when we start to see sex differences in sleep patterns. It becomes more apparent and more pronounced as women transition through reproductive age. So typically like pregnancy will have pregnancy specific factors like discomfort or the need to get up and pee more frequently in the night or heartburn, like those aspects. Mm-hmm. And, and then even in the beginning, women typically feel more tired even, right? So they're sleeping more and then later in the pregnancy, right? So there's more specific factors to pregnancy that will disrupt sleep. And then what we see is through perimenopause and menopause, sleep can be the first symptom, mm. which many women are waiting for their period to change. And many healthcare practitioners and doctors are waiting for women's period to change before they're saying here, you're perimenopausal. Right. And so a woman who's in her forties, who has a regular menstrual cycle and is noticing new onset sleep changes and fatigue and mood changes and goes to her doctor and says, could this be perimenopause? She's more likely to be told she's stressed Well, you're 40 and you have two kids and you're working your totally. then yes, this is a symptom of perimenopause and, oh, look, you have this, that, and the other, even though your cycles are still regular, you are perimenopausal. Your body works very hard to keep your menstrual cycle functioning and regular, and it can compensate in the early menopausal transition. And so we start to see changes in other areas. And most commonly with respect to sleep, it's that wake after sleep onset. So women will say, I fall asleep fine, but I'm waking up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. and I can't get back to sleep. So those are the aspects. And then certainly there's a, um, there's two graphs I'm always picturing in my mind when I'm talking about this one is if you picture like the evolution of man, that classic image, right. That's like the the, ape. Yes. The ape that transitions through homo sapiens into humans. And so there's a graph that looks like that. And it's like a little baby. And then she transitions into an older woman, right. Who's like hunched over with a cane and, um, it shows underneath hormone patterns and sleep patterns and changes to sleep patterns. And when I found that graph, it, the article is literally called sleep across sleep, sleep in women across the lifespan. I was like, Oh, this is beautiful because it, I'm like, it validates what we all experience. And it, and it does demonstrate like, okay, yes. Doesn't mean your hormones are causing your sleep disturbance, but it means they're correlated and it means that they're playing a role. Right. So that is a beautiful graph. And there's another graph that shows sleep disturbance according to time of onset of menopause. So if you, it's a bar graph and if you picture it, it's basically, it looks like a mountain peak. So in the four years, four to six years leading up to the final menstrual period, which we never know when that is until it's happened. We don't know that until a year later, right? There's a dramatic increase in sleep disturbances and then it comes down it does come down again after, but again, it's like four years after menopause. So there's just a, such a constant, it's such a concentrated, predictable time when women struggle, most women, like over 60%. And I probably mentioned this on the previous podcast as well, but I really feel like that's an underestimation because this narrative that we have of like, Oh, your mom or you're 40 or your menopausal sleep sucks. So women don't often bring it up as a primary concern and more likely to bring up the fatigue or the anxiety or the hot flashes. And two, we don't think that there's anything we can do about our sleep. We think it's just part of the process. Three, maybe we have a hesitation about like, Oh, I don't want to go to my doctor because I don't want a sleeping pill. And then we know on the other side that doctors, like I shared, we don't do a great job of proactively asking about sleep unless patients bring it up. 
we're far more likely to ask or counsel on diet and exercise and not necessarily sleep. So if we take all those things into consideration, there's probably way more women who are struggling without maybe being formally identified. Right. And then with your question with teens and how it relates to sleep and, and hormones and whatnot, there's a specific shift in the circadian rhythm that happens with teenagers. And so if you hear my little guy in the background, that's just him playing at dinner time. Mom life. But totally we have a, a, yeah, real life. So then the time difference is awesome. Early morning, dinner time for me. So um, in teenage years, we have a very real shift in the circadian rhythm or internal body clock where it phase delays. Okay. So what that means is if I told you as an adult that you had to go to bed at 4 PM, you would be like, you're crazy. That's really hard. My body's not ready for sleep for me to go to sleep and stay asleep at 4 PM. I'd have to get up at midnight the night before whatever. Right. So that is what it feels like to teenagers when you're saying go to bed at 10 PM because their body clock has shifted. And typically they're not ready for bed until later. Typically. And so the thought behind this evolutionary process is like somebody in the tribe had to be awake at all the time, all the time. Right. So let the teenagers be awake in the middle of the night and go off and gallivant and figure out their independence and then come back. So that is very real. And there, yes, there's things that we can do to support our teens to get better sleep so that it is following a more appropriate schedule. Because what the challenge is, is of course, if they're staying up to one or two and then having to get up early for school. Right. And then they're like trying to learn on, on sleep deprived brains, which isn't effective. So there's probably two or more factors at play there. There is so much to unpack in that Leah. (laughs) So much. Firstly, I just want to like, we'll just talk about teens because you just mentioned that. Mm -hmm. I think, and this is something that a lot of us would know, but on top of all of that, we have a lot of teens throughout the world, especially in Western cultures who have access to this very readily and easily, you know, using energy drinks and vaping and, you know, all. So there's, it's not just the pressure of sleep that they're under, especially having to get up, you know, at seven o'clock the next day to get ready and go back to school. It's also, or whether they're homeschooled, who knows, but it's also the other lifestyle pressures that are existing. And it's like a big I don't want to say it's a pandemic, but it's, is the right word an epidemic? Like it's really mm-hmm. huge oh, yeah. around teens. And, you know, when I work in schools, the amount of kids that I see just carrying energy drinks and, you know, crappy food. And I understand that when I was, you know, I'm late thirties now, but I understand when I was in high school, yeah, we had, you know, Mars bars and Kit Kats and, you know, those kind of things at school, but it was very limited. Whereas mm-hmm. today we, there's so much access to things. And I think that people forget that it's not just the sleep that we need to focus on. It's also all that stuff then throws the sleep out too. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've got lots to say about that, but I do, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we'll be here forever, but yeah, share. I can see you. All I was going to say is it circles back to that idea of the aura ring. And mm. when we are able to track different habits and you don't have to have the aura ring to do this, but simply tracking where you are in your menstrual cycle, tracking your different daily habits. That's how you start to correlate. Okay. If I have caffeine in the afternoon, how do I sleep? If I work out in the morning, if I work out at night, if I have wine at night, if I, right, those are the things that will help us 
identify how our patterns impact our sleep. And we tend to sleep, think about sleep, like the five minutes before we're going to bed, right? Like, oh yeah, I have to go do that thing now for eight hours. But how you sleep really is going to depend on what you do from the time you wake up in the morning. And I get it. Teens aren't going to care about that so much. Right. And that's, it's kind of like the rite of passage and they have to do that thing and figure it out. Although I will say that I'm, there's also many teen teens who are going to be motivated to optimize their sleep for things like athletic performance or academic performance. Right. And so that's where there are so many tools that you can use to ensure that their body clock is synced up with their, their daily schedule appropriately and they're getting adequate sleep. Right. And Mm. so it's fascinating because where the, I think the bigger theme and, and conversation, I always say kids make everything so obvious. And I know teens, they don't think they're kids, but if a baby doesn't get their nap or doesn't sleep well at night, how do they behave and feel? Crack they the can't, shit. yeah, <laughs> like they can't emotionally regulate. They're tired. They're grumpy. They're frustrated easily. Right. And you, I would never give my five-year-old the iPad in his bed and then take it away in a moment's notice and expect him to fall asleep instantly. And I think anybody who's listening can be like, you're right. Of course. Yeah. That's the way that kids are. Why? Like, so why do we think that when we are not getting great sleep and when we are staring at our phones in our bed, right before we're falling asleep or you know, when we don't have a moment for ourselves in the day, when we're not prioritizing how we're eating and moving our bodies and the people that we're spending time with and what we're doing, yes, leading up to bed, but of course, throughout the whole day, like, how do you expect yourself to feel? It's not fair to think that you can feel your best if you're not sleeping your best. Mm. And that's a big disconnect for people. That's a great quote. You know, how can you expect yourself to feel the best when you're not sleeping your best? And People don't put enough priority on the sleep. They put so much priority on the other things. Mm-hmm. Um, really good point about the kids and the regulating with babe, like babies because I always use that as a really great example. And as a naturopathic doctor, you would know this, that you know if you're an adult and you're not shitting every day, there's mm-hmm. something wrong, really wrong. And if you had a baby and all of a sudden it didn't shit for two days, you'd be really, really concerned but there are people who don't shit for three or four days and they just think that that's normal and they just keep going and keep going. And I'm like, hang mm-hmm. on, something mm-hmm. else there. And I think, you know, we, we are adults and we can use our minds and we can think and make decisions and all of that, but we forget that ultimately we're just a body, you know, a bag of bones and that bag of bones is still the same bag of bones as we were a baby. Mm-hmm. We all of a sudden treat it differently. How can mm-hmm. we remind ourselves that our body's communicating the same way it always has, but we're just not really listening as much. Mm -hmm. And we're internalizing so much of that as anxiety or Mm -hmm. depression or, 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 or all the things. And that leads Mm -hmm. me back to the other question that I want to ask you um, about when you were talking about the sleep struggle from, you know, around menopause is that it's true. I always talk about the menstrual cycle and how the fact that a lot of us are just told that having a heavy bleed or having a painful menstrual experience is just normal but it's more so common and then we look at menopause and that's the common bracket that I want to bring up is that well it's common for you to feel fatigued you have kids Mm. or you're running a business if you choose not to birth children in this lifetime and there's a lot more pressures at that time of life and you look at the whole lifespan 
I think it's from like 25 to like 55 is the time of your life when you're under the pressure of like producing and householding and producing income. And people have those stresses, not just, you know, all the other things that go into it as well. And we forget that, okay, well, is it really normal? Like it's common, Mm. but is it normal for us to be heavily fatigued, to have sluggish metabolisms, to be under pressure, to feel like we're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd love if you could just re-say what you mentioned about the four years before, because I'd love to add in about tracking for fertility around Mm. your menopausal time and how that can be supportive. So you you said four years before your last bleed, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we're looking at a bar graph in which say the middle point. Well, if you look at a course of a lifetime, it's going to be say 75% the way through. If that's the time of menopause, which would be final menstrual period, then in the four to six years leading up, there's a dramatic increase. So we see a steady slow kind of increase and then it jumps up and then it comes down two to four to six years following menopause as well. And that's the, the incidence or prevalence of sleep disorders and insomnia in, Mm. in women uh, relative to the last menstrual period. So you never know it's your last period until it's been a year without it looking back. You never know until it is the last. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's always the challenge for women to navigate, navigate through that. Right. I'm interrupting this episode to let you know that today is sponsored by my five-day Love Your Cycle mini course, a simplified self-paced course to teach you the foundations and fundamentals of your menstrual cycle in under a week. Receive daily educational class videos and audios along with action steps, cycle tracking guides, cycle prompts, and my Love Your Cycle 50-page ebook. This is your chance to discover everything you wish you had have been taught at school about your cycle, how to eat, how to move, honoring your emotions and identifying PMS and your cycle signs before they arise. It's now your turn to join over thousands of women from all over the world who have taken this course to reclaim and reconnect with their bodies. And you can do this in under a week for less than a fancy vegan burger. Use the code CYCLELOVE to save 20% off at wellsome.com forward slash shop. What, what did you ask me to speak on before the menopausal piece? Around men up to menopause and the differences mm-hmm. between do we have a sleep dis- oh. disruption in menarch? There you go. Is it common versus normal? Yeah. It's such a great question. So how I always look at this when women ask and we're having conversations around hormone replacement therapy and, and if I am informing them that it's actually a worthwhile consideration and we absolutely it's indicated in your case and we should use it for these reasons and benefits and whatnot. Women will say like, well, isn't menopause normal though? Like, why am I putting hormones back in my body? Isn't it normal for me to be, to go through menopause? And yes, it's normal, of course, but we weren't even a hundred years ago living half of our life in a hormone deficient state, right? The advancements of modern medicine and qualities of modern life keep us alive so that hopefully in for 50, 50%, like half of your life, you are living in that time or very Mm. close to it. And so when you look at the implications of menopause on the risks and the systems we care the most about, so at least in Canada, our number one risk of mortality for women in later in life is cardiovascular disease. It's not breast cancer. But if you ask a woman, what are you most worried about as it relates to your health as you get older, she'll typically say 
cancer, right? So we need to be proactive about our cardiovascular health. We need to manage our metabolic health, our blood sugar, right? Our risk of type two diabetes and stroke. We also need to be conscious and cognizant of bone health because yes. a hip fracture at age 80 has a 50% mortality rate. And what does hormones and especially estrogen do, right? It keeps our cholesterol in check and our blood pressure down and our blood sugar regulated and our bones strong. And we don't anticipate all of those changes until we are looking for that permission slip, right? Like so many women are saying, okay, well, I'm not, I, my hot flashes aren't as bad as so-and-so's, right? My sleep's not as bad as my sister's or my aunt's or my cousin or whoever, or I still have my period. So I guess there's nothing I can do about it. And then once they reach that point in menopause, they feel like that's their permission slip to go and do something about all of the things. <laughs> right? No, no, much earlier. And the reality is that even in the one year or three to five years leading up to that last menstrual period, that's when we see these dramatic shifts in all of those risks changes to cholesterol and metabolic health and, and mood and, and mental health and all of those components. So it's, we want to be proactive and we want to understand the role that hormones play. And we want to consider replacing them. We're not replacing them to the level that they are when you're 25 either, but we're replacing them for their therapeutic effects so that we can help support you if it's indicated and safe and all of those, those good things, right. You're making an informed decision. And so that's how I want women to think about it. I don't want women to think that they have to suffer or because they're living half of their life that they should be in a hormone deficient state because estrogen in particular does so much more than just regulate your menstrual cycle. Mm. And what's super fascinating about what you were saying about like age 25 to age 55 and being under so much pressure to perform and be productive and contribute. If we are more resilient if we score higher on resiliency, meaning we are socially connected, we're educated, we're informed, we feel empowered in our healthcare experience, we have satisfaction in our job, we have a spiritual practice, we have meaningful relationships, all of those things that help us manage and cope with our stress. It doesn't mean our stress is low, but it means we can respond to it effectively. If we are more resilient, we have less physical symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. And this is documented in the medical literature. So you and I can experience the same hormone shifts, but if I'm not managing my stress and if it's crushing me, and if I'm curling up in a ball at the end of the day, I'm more likely to have anxiety and depression and hot flashes and mood swing. Like, isn't that fascinating? Very, very fascinating. Mind blown. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because that is mind body medicine. And there's so many ways that we can't quantify it mm -hmm. and even qualify it. But now the research is actually looking at these things and saying, yes, women who are more resilient, they transition through menopause. They have an easier time. It's, it's not so life disruptive for them. And the same group, there's a group out of Switzerland too, who's researching this and they keep publishing papers on the topic at slightly different angles. And more recently they published some papers that were looking at, okay, like what's the, then what's the hormones? What are the hormones doing in the women who are resilient, right? Is there a contributing factor there? And so what they see is the women who have a more gradual progression through perimenopause and who ovulate for longer, basically. So progesterone 
um, was more, more correlated. I'm like, isn't that fascinating? Because we, we feel that way when you talk about cycle syncing, right? How do we feel in that ovulation phase? It's our inner summer. And it's when we come out we on top of our game and we got this. And I just, I, I'm, I'm always so amazed and fascinated by that research that supports that. I think it's fantastic. And I'm like, oh, can you send me all these papers? I want to read about this for menopause. Wow. I think everyone who's listening to this is just like, holy fuck. I didn't think about any of this. And you mentioned about like the life expectancy. And I always think of, um, you know, the three main archetypes that we know, like maiden, mother, crone. But we now have four archetypes because we no longer menstruate when we're 13 for the first time and then our mothers by the time we're like 19 20 if not earlier and then we're elderly in our 40s to 50s and maybe we make it to 50 maybe and people are living to 100 yes are beyond there are beyond 100 but that you know the, the numbers aren't as high so we're living so much longer but we're also dying longer and mm-hmm. so I think if we can take all of this into account and look at all of the multiple factors that contribute to optimal health and we can make it part of our lifestyle on a daily basis in really simple ways, that actually helps support us much further into the future. And when we talk about mm-hmm. menopause, something I'm always harping on about, Leah, is that how we entered our menarche and moved through our menstruation as our first period is going to be reflected again when we hit menopause unless something changes. And so a lot of the times people enter menarche and it's like for our age bracket up, you know, it was shunned. It wasn't talked about. It was hidden. It was dismissed. And that's the same thing that happens at menopause unless something changes. So I'm really passionate about educating the 25 to like 45 year old women that get connected to your cycle, start living in tune with the four phases of your cycle, because as you enter pre-menopause, Technically, the medical world calls premenopause like in your 30s and then perimenopause is just before menopause starts. But I don't like the word peri. It's a very roundabout. So we're just, it's all premenopause to me. Mm-hmm. And I like to educate that if you can really understand your cycle well in your 20s and well in your 30s, you will know when you're in the last four years before menopause comes, mm-hmm. which comes back to that change and that spike. And I think women at that age bracket and like this is no judgment I'm not there yet so I can't speak from personal experience from but from all the women that I've worked with the women in that age bracket let's just say mid 40s to late 40s and then 50s or early 50s so that that eight to ten year bracket there is that yeah they're all under a lot of different pressure and maybe they have three kids maybe they're trying to manage their cycle whilst also managing their two teenage daughters cycles too And we forget that if I'm attuned with my cycle at that age bracket, I will notice that all of a sudden my cycle's now 35 days instead of it being Mm -hmm. 29 or 30, or all of a sudden it's 40 days long instead of being like, God, I can't even remember when my last bleed was. If we can start tracking from a much earlier age, it becomes part of our lifestyle. And this is one of the reasons, and I'll wrap my rant up on this, but one of the reasons why I love natural fertility tracking is that it prepares you for where your when your next period is arriving after say six months of not bleeding and you can mm-hmm. see if you're still potentially fertile or not and then you mm-hmm. can pick 
to know, okay, is it just my left ovary that's got no more follicles, you know, maturing? Or is mm-hmm. it, am I only ovulating from my right ovary? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I can expect that I'm going to roughly have a double cycle length instead of it being one cycle length. And this, excuse my language, is such fucking powerful information that would partner well with that four years before mm-hmm. we hit that last period time because it gives us an opportunity of go, oh, things are shifting okay, do I also need to shift my lifestyle to shift with the shifters, like to, mm-hmm. with, with, to shift with the shifting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. To me, S is there. Um, but so fascinating. So thank you so much for sharing mm-hmm. that. Um, what, no, it's, any, it's, anything you want to add? I would add that at the beginning of perimenopause or premenopause, you know what we, we really should call it is it's the menopausal transition. So in reproductive years, we have our regular menstrual cycle and it can still fluctuate. So some people are like, Oh, my cycle is becoming irregular. It's like a daily, like it's okay. Anywhere between a 25 and 35 day cycle is typically considered normal. Although most women will, will center around, you know, 26, 28 consistently. And so at first in perimenopause or that early menopausal transition cycles come closer together. And why it's also so powerful to track is that women will get cycles out of nowhere or bleeds out of nowhere, right? They're not expecting it. And they're like, oh, where did that come from? And then the next cycle they feel and and they get their premenstrual symptoms and they're like, okay, bleed is coming and it comes. When you track all of those bleeding episodes and whether you have related symptoms or not, it helps us identify which cycles, or I should say, which bleeds were ovulatory versus anovulatory because we won't have premenstrual symptoms in anovulatory bleeds. And as we get closer to menopause, more and more and most of those cycles become anovulatory, right? So that layers in one, you know, your baseline status and what's regular and usual for you. And when you start to notice these changes, you can track all of those other components and, and it is often valuable retrospectively looking back, right. To say, well, look, I've had this many bleeding episodes and I'm getting no warning for them. We are then expecting like, you're really moving through this phase and even transitioning into that late menopausal transition where your cycles are probably going to get further apart and they're probably going to stop soon and, and whatnot. And that's helpful because it, allows us to understand and gauge where you are in that transition and therefore what supports you need or would be indicated. So I think that's super helpful to frame in that sense of what's usual for you and what it represents from a hormonal status. So important, like so important. And just quickly, there's going to be some people who are like, what the fuck? You have an anulatory cycle. And I, it goes back to kind of what I was saying before, that how you enter your menstrual years is how you leave your menstrual years. Because a lot of the time when we start menstruating for the very first time, for those first few cycles can be anovulatory. And people don't realize that. And so, you know, back in the, you know, the nineties for me, it was like, quick, put her on the pill. She's ovulating. Right. But is she really? And so can you explain um, in a succinct way, if it's possible, how is it possible for a woman to have an anovulatory cycle in those last few years Mm -hmm. of their menstrual years? 
one of my favorite topics. I oh, find it so fascinating. Wait, should we record another episode on this topic? Because I- <laughs> We totally could. We totally could. So I'll do the short version and then let's meet again and do the long version. The short version is that we are born with our eggs. And when we are 45, let's say on average, those eggs are also 45 and they're not triple grade A eggs anymore. They're not top quality. And so they don't fully develop and their hormone production may not be adequate or as high as it would have been in peak reproductive years. And so the communication that goes between your brain and your ovaries becomes a, a, a hyperactive, if you will. So what happens is your ovaries don't produce this beautiful egg and they kind of just stall. And then your brain is like, Hey, pick up the pace where, what are you guys doing? And that FSH hormone yells at your ovaries and then they kick back into gear. But what can happen is a second follicle starts developing at the same time that that first follicle that's now halfway developed continues to develop. So you've got what's called cycle stacking or luteal out of phase. And so then you have two eggs developing at the same time, but at different stages. Okay. Mind blowing. Yeah, I know. And so when that first egg that was developed goes through full maturation, assuming it's not fertilized, right? You get your bleed, but this other egg is only 10 days behind it, where usually it would be a month. And so women then get this bleeding episode because it, uh, of when two eggs are developing at once, often we have higher levels of estrogen than we would expect. And so that egg may or may not actually be released but because of that surplus of estrogen production from two follicles developing at the same time, that uterine lining gets really thick, right? Sometimes if progesterone, sorry, if ovulation hasn't occurred, then progesterone isn't there. There's no ability to maintain that lining and then it's shed. Mm, The joys of transition, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and it's, it is wildly inconvenient, but also super fascinating. So fascinating. Like so fascinating. I've got some amazing, absolutely amazing Marga women. So menopausal, postmenopausal women in my life. And, you know, I've learned so much about them around this transition and they're really in my inner circle, which is great. And I always encourage clients to embrace every single cycle because you don't know if it's going to be your last, like do a, like do some blood magic. Yeah. Like paint your body in the blood, give yourself a blood mask, Um, I've got women who paint with it and have, you know, they've made homemade or they've made their own drums out of like kangaroo Mm. skin. And then they paint the inside of their drum drum with their last menstrual bleeds through their menopausal time. And it becomes something they get to keep with them forever. And this, you know, maybe that's a whole nother podcast episode topic too, but it's so important to understand that there are some really deep transitions that go on here. And it all comes back to understanding your body, understanding how you can support your body and also ask for support and help because so many born women are not good at that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're like, oh, we can do it all on our own and I can look independent and I can look fierce and knowledgeable in everything. And I think it's really important to understand that it takes a village to raise, raise children, but it also takes a village to feel supported through transition. So, you know, really honoring that. We've hardly talked about sleep. And I think I would like to just circle back really quickly on a couple of little things because I know we're almost out of time and I really want to respect your time. Otherwise, we'll just be here for hours. I wanted to ask you um, two questions about tracking. So I've already mentioned about the aura Mm -hmm. ring, but is it really important to track your sleep? And what are the benefits Mm -hmm. of tracking your sleep? Great question. So if you 
think tracking your sleep will be helpful if it's going to inform behavior change. And if it doesn't make you more anxious, then it's a great tool to use. And it can be helpful for the reasons we talked about in terms of tracking your cycles or your daily habits and helping that inform and your understanding of how well you sleep based on those different cycles and habits. And then once you see and understand your sleep quality and quantity, what you can then do to inform change. So if you will act on it, like wearing the aura ring doesn't make you get better sleep. I have to do the things that it tells me, (laughs) right. Or I have to, I have to play around with what it tells me. I have to track those components. And so that's something that's really important because like you said, at the beginning, often people are looking for that magic fix outside of themselves. So tracking your sleep can be helpful in that sense. And as long as it doesn't create anxiety, because a lot of people who have struggled with sleep for a long time feel that they will, it will contribute more to that performance anxiety, or they'll worry if their sleep score isn't optimal or if their aura ring, you know, is telling them, you know, prioritize. So it's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Right. And when I did wear it a little bit postpartum, I'm like, can there please be like a postpartum mode? Cause it's like, it looks like something disturbed your sleep last night. I was like, yeah, (laughs) I know it's called a baby. (laughs) So (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny, but not funny. And so that I always, I I talk about sleep tracking in my program and with my patients with the caveat of if this makes you feel worse about your sleep, don't do it. Mm. And we're not about adding things to your life that you can be anally like attentive to. We're adding things to our lives. It's kind of like I had a conversation, this is so off topic, um, the other day with someone about shares and how some people like in the stock market, they're checking it every few hours, you know, like that really anal mm-hmm. style, at, like, I don't it's such a weird word, anal around track. But anyway, I don't know why, but that's the word that people resonate and understand. But it's so like anal around checking it. Obsessive. Yeah. Thank you. That's a better word. Obsessive with using sleep tracking or tracking anything it's also really important to not be obsessive because that's also like orthorexia obsessive with healthy eating is we want to have the healthy medium Mm -hmm. of like where can we find the balance here because Mm -hmm. the obsessiveness can also make us very unhealthy so everything everything with a grain of salt hey Mm -hmm. Mm. thank you for sharing now the other thing i wanted to talk about is sleep pressure and Mm -hmm when we think about sleep, how can we actually improve our sleep or best how, what are the top tips you would give someone to best support their sleep? Mm -hmm. The first thing that's most supported by research and recommended is often the hardest. And that's to pick a consistent wake up time and to stick to it. So what happens when we And this ties into sleep pressure. So we've had a bad night's sleep, our inclination or desire tendency is to then sleep in to get that little bit of sleep that we do happen to get once we've fallen back asleep, right? The challenge is that if we are normally waking up at six and all of a sudden we sleep until eight, it's equivalent to jet lagging your body two hours. So Mm. sleep pressure builds from a hormone called adenosine, which is released and, and into our nervous system and higher amounts, the longer we're awake. So it will steadily build from the time we wake up until about 14 to 16 hours later. That's where we'll reach maximal sleep pressure, provided we haven't slept in in that time. So like a nap, 
or we haven't over-caffeinated because caffeine will block the action of adenosine in our body. When you reach that maximal point of sleep pressure, you are nodding off. So your head is heavy, your eyes are heavy, right? You've been on in a car or on an airplane or watching a movie or whatever. And you've had that sensation of like, I want to fall asleep right now. That is sleep pressure. And so when we're, when we wake up at 8 AM, 14 to 16 hours is 10 PM or midnight. When we wake up at 6 PM, right? That 14 to 16 hours is 8 to 10 PM. And that might not seem like a big difference, but think about Sundays. So if you stay up late on Saturday night and then sleep in on Sunday and then Sunday night, and what else happens on Sunday? You have an extra cup of coffee, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe have an afternoon nap. And then on Sunday night, you're like, I need to get into bed early because I need to get up for work tomorrow morning. And you get into bed before your body is actually ready. So that consistent wake up time helps anchor your circadian rhythm and it helps tie into our natural cycles in that sense. And from there, really connecting with that sensation of sleep pressure and a great quote by Matthew Walker, who wrote why we sleep is you would never sit at your dining room table waiting to get hungry. So do not get into bed waiting to get sleepy. That's where we build cortisol and frustration and lie there awake and toss and turn. Right. So we want to wake up at a consistent time, regardless of how bad you slept, because keeping that consistent wake up time is going to more efficiently help you build that sleep pressure, making it easier for you to fall and stay asleep the following night. Mm. And just on that, do you think it's important as we move through the seasons of the year to have a slightly different wake up time? Because I know in summer where I live, the sun is up at like 4am, whereas in Mm -hmm. winter it's like 6am. So there's a big Mm -hmm. difference. And I find that my sleep wake up time, it's quite consistent. You know, I've been an early morning training person since I was like 14. So it's just embedded. I wake up every day at like 5.30 or 5.15. Mm-hmm. But in summer, I tend to wake up just a little bit earlier and it's consistent through that season. And then in winter, I wake up just a little bit later and it's consistent through that season. So any final little add-ins on that? I agree. I think listen to your body and that intuition and those natural cycles. It's also easier to stay up later in the summer because it's brighter and it's easier mm-hmm. to wake up because it's brighter. So you may not need or desire the same amount of sleep season to season. And that's where there has to be that form and flow because a lot of it, a lot of us and people who struggle with insomnia can really focus on the form and get obsessive about, I have to do my bedtime routine in this specific order at this specific time. And if I miss one component, I have to start all over again, or it's not going to work. And there's a lot of that anticipatory anxiety around being able to fall and stay asleep. Right. But there has to be Again, that nervous system regulation, your sleep has to be, sleep is, is natural. It doesn't mean Mm. it comes naturally, but we have to lean in to those cycles and we have to teach our body and listen to what it needs at, at different times. And yes, I, I agree. I think that it will vary season to season. And I noticed that too. Mm, Amazing. Thank you. And you're right. Every single type of cycle, your menstrual cycle, your sleep cycle, your food cycle, the season cycle of the year everything needs to be slightly adapted to where you are in that point and that nothing is linear. So it's never going to be the same all the time. It's really people just, anyway, we could talk about Mm -hmm. these topics forever. Mm -hmm. I love chatting Mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Leah, thank you so much for being here. This has been fantastic. And we've gone in so many different, you know, angles and ways and, you know, 
understanding sleep in such a broad way around the menstrual cycle has been fantastic. So thank you for sharing your time with us. Mm-hmm. How can everyone find you if they're like, oh my God, I need to learn more about this for me. I'm entering menopause. Um, how can women connect with you and, and discover more about your sleep education? Yeah, absolutely. So there's five key hormone systems that you can support to get better sleep. It goes so much more beyond, but obviously our, our menstrual cycle hormones play a key role too. You can check that framework out at the better, actually it's better sleep There's no the in the front and yeah. save 10%. Your listeners get uh, $50 off with coupon code. Well, woman. So it's better sleep go there and check out and see how much you can influence and control and shift and lean into the best sleep that you've ever had. And otherwise come hang out with me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Leah Saunders ND. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for offering your beautiful discount to our listeners. Um, I think the code's wellwoman50. So I'll just confirm that, but I will pop it in. You're welcome. You're definitely welcome. I'll pop it in the show notes so people have got a link and can just access that straight away. And if you feel that sleep is a challenge for you or a, something you'd like to learn more about it, definitely jump on because like Lee is the best person I've ever met who not understands sleep and explains it so well. So thank you. Thank you. I will ask you our final podcast question and we can mm-hmm. wrap up. I asked you this last time, but I'm interested to see if there's anything different that you're going to throw into the mix here. I want you to think back to your younger menstrual self when you started to go through your sleep changes, staying up late, defining the gravities of mm. sleep with your parents. What are three things you wish you had have known about your body and your cycle then that you now know today? Mm. Hmm. That you can't get pregnant on any day. Um, yeah, I, I, I laugh, but it's true because that's what we're taught, right? Like, and that there are inherent gifts in each cycle because I too, like many girls and women went on the pill for a number of years. And I wasn't, I had no idea that there was a natural rhythm and cycle and and we could tap into that and that there are gifts in each one. And so I think looking back, it's like, you have a fear or you're taught a fear of like, well, you will get pregnant and your period's an inconvenience. So go on the pill and manage it kind of thing. Those are the two things. I know you asked for three, but those are the two that come to mind. I love it. No, that's perfect. Thank you. So grateful for your time and your energy and your wisdom. So thank you so much for sharing that with us again. And I'm sure again in the future, because I will definitely be asking you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, But Leah, thank you so much. And I can't wait for our listeners to follow you and learn more about sleep because this is such an important topic. So thank you. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for tuning into every episode of the Well Woman podcast. For everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can find this in the show notes over at wellsome.com forward slash podcast. If this episode excited you, please hit follow on Spotify, which means all of my episodes will pop up in your feed weekly so you never miss a weekly drop. I'd love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts too. Love this episode? Come and follow me over on Instagram at wellsome underscore Gemily. Say hi and share what you've taken away from this episode with me. Now, is there a bestie, sister, or a friend who you know who might be fed up, frustrated, and confused with their cycles? Are they ready to join you in awakening their cyclical essence too? Well, take a screenshot of this podcast episode, share it on your socials, email it, text it, or any way you need to get it to them. So together, we can all live in flow, harmony, and balance with our cycles. Now, until next time, beautiful, get connected, listen to your body, and remember, body confidence all begins with living in tune with your menstrual cycle.